Hey everyone, Mitchell here. Before we start the show, a huge thank you to the Walton Family Foundation. Thanks for the continued support this season. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Fieldwork Podcast. I'm Mitchell Hora. Today on the podcast, I am actually out visiting Brad Buchanan, a little field trip that we've got going here. Brad is a cattle rancher from Colorado. And last year, uh, last August is when we recorded this, I trekked out to Colorado. I was out there anyway and went to go visit Brad at his place in the High Plains, just east of Denver. Brad is a really interesting guy. He's an architect. He's a former planner for the city of Denver, and now he's a rancher. Brad's got about 2,000 head of grass-fed cattle that he's raising, slaughtering, and selling direct to consumer in the Denver and surrounding areas. Uh, the name of Brad's outfit is the Flying B-Bar Ranch. Everyone, I hope you'll really enjoy today's conversation. Brad, thanks a ton for having us out today. Really excited to learn about your your ranch and your first generation ranch here. Um, introduce yourself and explain to us where we're at today and uh, what are we going to learn? You bet. I'm Brad Buchanan. I'm one of the owners and operators here at Flying B-Bar Ranch. We raise grass-fed, grass-finished cattle. We sell... Uh, raise them from from calf to slaughter, and we have a direct-to-consumer online store operation that we have developed from scratch, from from uh, from not knowing much at all about farming and ranching to 15 years later having an operation that's up and running and is a growing con- going concern that we're proud of. We come from very different backgrounds. Uh, I'm seventh generation farmer. You're first generation. How did that start? I describe us as accidental ranchers. We bought this as a Eastern Plains weekend escape and to train some dogs, but quickly came to see that this landscape needed cattle on it. it first of all, that all the infrastructure was here for cattle, the landscape, the ecology needed, needed that livestock. So we really bought our first batch of 22 mama cows, bred mama cows as lawnmowers, honestly, just like, what do we do with this grass? And, but then quickly saw how that was just such an integral part and and just fell in love with that work. I'm an architect and a planner by background and the concept of looking at this ecology and this landscape and the business model and sort of understanding and appreciating the urban and rural experience I was having as owning an architecture and construction company in downtown Denver, but living and loving this and respecting this rural community of, you know, Strasburg, Colorado and Bennett, Colorado, um, really big, took our hearts quickly and we jumped in head first and, uh, haven't stopped. And that was that, that we bought the property in 2006. So we've been at it ever since. Yeah. So 2006 and, and you were telling me before, don't have the dogs anymore, but there are a couple of dogs around. We got to give Marshmallow a shout out. Marshmallow, I hear is you were telling me is the famous dog for the for the farm. Um, although of course it's mostly mostly cattle, but a couple of dogs just to hang out. And you, you haven't gotten fully away from the dogs. No, no. Yet. We've got we and we've got trained dogs now. There's cattle dogs here, and Marshmallow is the infamous night watchman and poster child on our social media for Flying B Bar Ranch. Marshmallow is a big old Great Pyrenees dog. So uh, I'm sure loves the Colorado winters that you have out here. He does. Um, but how's that work for the rest of the livestock and and for the operation? You know, based on you know some pretty harsh environment, I would imagine for a good part of the year. How do you guys how do you guys handle that? So we do have some rough rough winters. We had the infamous uh, bomb cyclone in March of 2019, and we lost a lot of calves that year. We've had some tough years, but we also have quite a bit of uh, creek bottom that flows through the ranch, and uh, it's mostly dry creek bottom. But there's great riparian um, uh, landscapes there that lots of cottonwood trees and um, pinyon and and junipers and things like that. So we get good cover for them, but uh, you know, yeah, we've got we've got some hot, dry summers, and we can have some cold, windy, windy winters that we've had to learn to deal with. We we run our cattle. Uh, my partner uh, Rob Gary uh, has a, a ranch also in north of Silverthorne, so we have, all our yearlings are up there now on on grass uh, along the Blue River north of Silverthorne. Okay, so it, how far away is that? Uh, it's it's probably seventy miles, I suppose, oh, wow. up there, and uh, so we trailer them up there in the, in the summer for the summer and early fall. And so in 2006, you started with 22 head. Yeah. How much, where are we at now? 
Uh, so we have sort of four age groups of cattle here and, and basically five herds. We have mamas, calves. Right now they're running as pairs because we haven't weaned them yet. We have yearlings. We have fats. And then we have a bull herd. So there are times when we are running five different groups of cattle, uh, mostly moving around in mob grazing or rotationally grazed using hot wire to move them around. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we run between, and it varies in terms of the marketplace and, and what we do here and versus what we can, uh, do to address what has been a growing marketplace. Um, we're trying to do what's right for this land. Right now we have 175 mamas and hundred, and we had a few more than that last year. So we've got more, uh, calves, uh, yearlings and fats right now than that. So we run between anywhere between 100, 850 and say 950 head usually on the whole ranch operation. And uh, so part of, you know, with this environment and where you're at, moving cattle through mob grazing and, and such is a principle of soil health. And be able, and you mentioned that from the very beginning that, you know, you got on this land and it was missing something and that was livestock. And I think we see that for a wide you know, diverse landscape across the whole country and around the world that, you know, this land originally had buffalo and other animals on it all the time here in the high plains. Um, what's your take on soil health? What's your concept there? And how did that start? I mean, we really first focused on the grass, right? And, and, and honestly, to me, soil health was an, a completely unknown concept to me. So I've learned they didn't Everything teach that in architecture school? Yeah, didn't talk about that oh, in yeah. architecture school. But, um, you know, we've been focused on growing grass, not beef, and and because the outcome ends up to be where we want it to be, that has evolved over the years uh, into looking at soil health. My partner, Rob Gary, is, is very uh, expert and versed in a, a lot of things around soil health is really brought a lot to the team in terms of that and pushing us all to to evolve uh, uh, in, in looking at soil health. And, and it's been fascinating because we have different types of ground too. So we have grass pastures, but we, we also want to raise all of the feed we and hay that we grow because we don't feed any corn or any grain. So it's all hay. Um, we want to raise all that ourselves. So we've also learned to be pretty competent farmers that takes lifetimes to get it really good at. But uh, we have become uh, decent farmers and, and we've worked on everything from ground that, that, you know, we started farming almost 15 years ago to some fields that we've taken on in the last few years. And they're all in very different states of, of soil health. And, and I would generally say that the, you know, the, the ground on the Eastern Plains, it's very sandy because this is the Kiowa Creek bottom. It, it, it's very sandy, but there are some advantages to that too. The land is, the soil is very frugal when it comes to water management. Uh, you know, we average only 13 inches of rain here. But it's, it is so smart about how it retains that moisture and how it uses that moisture. Managing moisture for us is at the top of the list. You've got to do that really well in order to have the things happen that you need to have happen in order to go from a more bacterial soil to a more fungal soil, a, a, you know, a, a richer, more nutrient-based, uh, rich uh, soil uh, composition. Well, it's just being able to get it more imbalanced, I think, is what a lot of that boils down to. And that's really my you know, definition of soil health. It's balance and chemical, physical, and biological. And that's exactly what you're talking. So you know, the physical components of being able to infiltrate and hold water that, yeah, you only get 13 inches. You better not waste it. <laughs> you better yeah, not every, let it run every off. Every drop. Yeah. So uh, how have you seen that? You know, has there been a transition to that? Or, I mean, this ground, I, I assume, has been, you know, just been no-till and it's had grass on it pretty much for forever, or is that not necessarily the case? So the the pastures are, uh, there's some native grass pastures that we have. Most of it, though, is really is CRP mix that is out of CRP. We don't have any CRP that we own. Uh, we do lease and graze some CRP pastures. We have great relationships with NRCS. They, they really like working with us because they know we know how to manage grass well. But uh, on the farm fields, they're, they've become an integral part of our whole pasturing operation. So yes, we're going to grow hay on it. But for example, 
we grow a lot of triticale. So, and triticale or triticale, depending on who you're talking to, um, triticale, uh, we, we plant it. It's like winter wheat gets planted. We plant it early. So we get a stand. We'll, we'll plant at the end of this month. Okay. End of, so end of August. End of August. Yeah. We're getting ready right now to, to plant and we'll, we'll plant into it, uh, plant the triticale, hope to get a stand, potentially graze some of that this fall. If, if if we get a good stand, not always, but if we do, we will. Um, Hopefully we're going to get some good snowpack and some good spring moisture when, which we pretty much uh, consistently do get. In the spring, we'll we'll graze that too on some of the fields. Some of the fields we will choose to completely dedicate to grazing. So we're not gonna we're not gonna bale those. Others of them we will stay off of and grow and 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 cut and bale. That said, we're very much now looking at field conversion to grass and to to using cover crops. So I would say that's been part of the the evolution over the over the years. We've tried a lot of cover crops. We absolutely try to keep fields from being bare fields until right before we plant, uh, keeping the stubble and keeping that cover, capturing the snow, shading the soil, keeping the soil cooler temp is a huge part of the process. And even using weeds to do that too. That's really been in the last year, something we've really looked at is how do we, do we, do we want to completely eliminate chemical spray? And that's really where we're at right now is we're eliminating chemical spray. So any chemical spray there, that's all the herbicides, no fungicides, no, no, nothing. Nothing. Okay. But is it, we still do. I mean, we still are organic though, are you? Or is no, we are not organic. Uh, we have not gone for organic certification. The thing that's kept us from being, uh, we we actually meet and exceed all organic standards, and and but the the requirements around not having treated posts on your fence lines is, we have miles of you know posts that have been in the ground for decades. So so I'm definitely not familiar with this rule. So for an organic system, you can't have a treated post. Yeah, this was, this, we, I should probably look into it again, but yeah, like five years ago, it, it, this, the pastures can't have uh, organic, can't have treated posts in them. And if treatment, that has changed, I need to find that out. Yeah, is, but uh, it's treatment against, against the post rotting, right? That's the treatment that's on it. Yeah, but it's the, I mean, the, the creosote coating yeah. is a petroleum based product and, and that could potentially, you know, impact the soil around, around those fence posts. For the couple inch area around the fence post. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I mean, our approach is, I mean, we we our customers that buy our beef, uh, they are they pursue us because they may like the the fact that we're grass fed, grass finished. They may like the fact that we're local. They um, they they like we're very focused on animal welfare as well. You know, we like to say our cattle have one bad day. And uh, it's not that bad a day. If on my 93rd birthday, you could sign me up to go over there to the slaughter plant, and uh, I'm probably okay with that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, the, our customers, uh, you know, there's a growing sector of the beef buying marketplace. You know, we're very close to Denver, so obviously, Denver's a progressive foodie town and Boulder and Fort Collins and Colorado Springs and the mountain towns. That's, that's where the, the majority of our, our sales come from. That's coincidental, honestly. I mean, we're trying to look at this ranch as a, as a pilot project, if you will, and prove up that we can improve soil health, work on carbon sequestration, focus on carbon sequestration, and return tilled soil to native grasses on the eastern plains of Colorado without irrigation. Yeah. And how's that compare to some of your neighbors and other people around around you? Like, do you feel like there's a community kind of building around some of the concepts you're talking there, which really what you're talking about is regenerative ag is what yes. you're talking about. Yes. Um, so it, are you seeing other people do that or not necessarily? It's kind of new. We're definitely the weird guys. Um, I mean, when when we have cattle out in a triticale field, people call us to tell us that our cows are out. And I was like, no, actually, we, we we put them in there and they don't quite understand why we would have just done that. And the way we rotate our crops and 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 move our cattle with hot wire. But that said, I I absolutely sense uh, an interest in that, a curiosity in that. I have noticed uh, a number of neighbors who have started growing triticale and grazing their cattle on them. Uh 
and and we get a lot of questions from folks. But you know, farmers and ranchers are also private people. They 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 let each other you know have their own businesses. I have not for sure have not felt resistance uh, or or that we're somehow shunned in this community because even though we only you know, we've been here for fifteen years is not a short period of time. We're still newbies to this country. You sure. know this 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 these communities are like like your family yeah. are you know five six seven generations of farmers and ranchers. Um, you know and and I know we're not you know my my other full-time job at the National Western Center, uh, where I'm CEO there, is about connecting the urban and rural place. And that that conversation and the evolution and the and regenerative ag is very much alive and well um, uh, all around the world. And and we're um, th- farmers and ranchers are are interested. They're the they're entrepreneurs. I mean, you know, think about it. Farmers and ranchers put all the chips on the table basically every single season. And you didn't have the preconceived notion, you know, of, well, this is what dad did and what granddad always, always did, you know, so that I think hinders a lot of people. You were able to go into it totally open-minded, but you've been able to really push on that with online sales direct to consumer. Does any of your stuff go through the commercial system right now? None of it. It's all direct to, you know, calf to table. I mean, you're just able to capture so much more of that food dollar and and be able to drive and focus on profitability. And that's what I think the farmers have to be able to look at too and, and ranchers is what's your actual bottom line? And as we're pushing on sustainability and understanding that farm to fork movement that you've been able to really capture, like it's about telling that story and ensuring that the farm is going to be economically sustainable. And, uh, and now it sounds like, you know, now you are going to be able to have that legacy of having now your son involved and having, you know, future generations be able to continue to, to carry this out. How, how is that? I guess what got you interested in the direct to consumer model? Uh, I, I knew lots of people in Denver when we moved out here. They all thought we were nuts. That's a whole nother group that looked at us and shook their head and said, what the heck are Brad and Margaret doing? Um, but they were very interested. They were fascinated by it. They wanted to know about this place. And it became this forum for conversation. You know, it really is at our highest and best use. One of them is, is that we're engaging in a discussion just like you and I are doing today. And, yeah. and I hope, you know, a lot of people get to hear this and are curious and want to learn more, uh, whether it's about us and what we're doing or, or, or these bigger issues that, that you're covering on your, on your podcast. From the very beginning, you've been direct to consumer. How has that continued to scale and, and, you know, why really focus on that? So when we started and the first year we slaughtered, we slaughtered seven head and we did that with friends and family and it went really well. And, uh, we had did one slaughter and the next year, I forget, we did 20 some head or something like that. And it kind of grew and, uh, and so it was really friends and family. And then at one point I thought, well, you know, this probably not that hard to create a website. So, you know, got a WordPress. It was only like 2008 or whatever. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Like, oh. Got a, got a WordPress subscription and, and build a little website and, and it worked. We built a little online store where you could order H quarters, halves and holes. And that was it. There were no customs uh, or individual cuts at all. And, that was it. And we would be sold out in March every year for a November, December slaughter. So we were trying to grow to to, to be able to respond and, and supply that market demand that we were seeing. And 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 then at one point we decided, okay, let's let's do a spring slaughter because we also leave our bulls in for a long time. And uh I mean, messy ranching actually works kind of for us. We like we don't, all of our calves don't look the same and that's good for us. They get fat at different times. That's good for us. And we started slaughtering twice a year. And then we went to four times a year. And then we made a, a big leap to go to every other week. We did that because the Brown Palace Hotel, which is a five-star hotel in downtown Denver, uh, came to us and said they wanted to um, buy our beef, which we did for about five years uh, that ended three or four years ago, and we jumped to every other week to supply them, and uh, but then they got bought by a large um, national group, and they brought in their national supply sources, and we were out, and that's been the only wholesale experience we've ever done, and and then uh, when the pandemic hit, 
2020, we more than doubled our business. People were, you know, they, they went to the grocery store and didn't see beef on the shelves. And they were like, we got to figure out another way to source our protein. We, we doubled our business, more than doubled. And, you know, year to date uh, in 21, we're, we're about uh, 2x of what we did in 2019. So those customers have stuck with us. Uh, the, the vast majority of them have come back and have found a new way to, to buy beef. And so, uh, you know, the pandemic, while tragic for the planet and this country and our communities, uh, has been a blessing, honestly. I feel guilty saying that, but it's been an amazing opportunity, as we've seen nationally for direct-to-consumer opportunities for farmers and ranchers looking to, you know, kind of eliminate the middleman. To use technology and to, to connect. And, and a lot of this, you know, it boils down to it's advocating for family farms and advocating for sustainability, regenerative soil health, you know, whatever, you know, you can brand it as. Um, but it's also then, yeah, being able to showcase, yeah, here's where, here's where your food comes from. You guys, uh, you though connect with your consumers today in a variety of ways. And as we've been sitting here, people keep pulling in to the driveway, backing up to the shed that we're sitting in your office on the edge of, and they're picking up their beef, but you also are shipping it. You're also like, how does that work? So we slaughter every week now and we uh, ship every week via FedEx. And that was a whole process of learning. You know, we build our own insulated boxes. We have a website, an online store now that has, I think, more than 80 individual cuts on. You can go and order two ribeyes and 10 pounds of ground beef and a couple of roasts if you want. Uh, we ship kind of 10 or 15 pound boxes to 20, 25 pound boxes, basically just to the Colorado and right around neighboring states. We're about to evolve into a national uh, offering. We've done, we've connected. Uh, so so it, it all started with, you know, eight quarters halves and holes. And then people would call us in July and go, you know, I'm out of steaks or I'm out of ground beef. Can you sell us some of that? And it's like, well, no, we don't, we don't have that. We said we should. <laughs> and so we started, you know, with some simple um, offerings at first. We think we put maybe 20 things on the store and, you know, steep learning curve of standing up that business. All the advertising we do is on social media. That's it. And we don't have a big advertising budget at all. I mean, we we probably spend a thousand bucks a month on advertising. Um, you know, and and in 2020, we did, you know, almost two million dollars in gross sales, which just blows me away. Pretty good return. Our, yeah. And uh, well, I wouldn't say it's a great return. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the ranch that we operate in the black um, this last year for the first time ever. You know, I I have another full time job. I, I I don't none of us take any money out of the ranch. We we put it all back into this operation and and we're still doing that because we want to we want to really maximize the opportunity for the ranch both in terms of the, the really the the uh, innovation and and experimental work we want to do around soil health and proving up that this model can function but also uh to be able to uh, address what is clearly a growing marketplace for us which happens a lot by word of mouth quite frankly Folks work with us. We're very customer friendly. We love to work with first timers on buying a half beef. That's a really intimidating thing to do. It's a big check to write. It's a scary thing to do. Boy, if I don't, what if I don't like this? Or what if it isn't what they say it is? It's we really we hold their hand at every step of the way, and we we enjoy our customers. Our customer customers are just fascinating people. We joke, but I, I think we should do this. We I, I love I there were just fun, cool, smart people. I mean, I, I love our customers. They are, they're, they're seekers and they're, they have curiosity around regenerative agriculture. And, um, so how do you tell the rest of that story? So some of them are coming out here and physically coming to the farm to see it and they can see the cattle, they can see the grass, they can see the operation, but how do you tell the rest of that story? Obviously some of it through social media. Oh yeah. It's just taking pictures and some videos or how's that work? We do, obviously, a lot of it happens right in front of the red barn here. When people are picking it up, we talk. They always have questions. We we do, you know, tours. People always want to come and take a tour, and we try to, you know, get groups of people together to do that. It's slowed down through the pandemic, but we, we have done a lot of that in the past. And then, uh, and then social media, we've got a, we have a very, and, and our website, I'll start with our website, but I've spent 
a lot of time over the years on the website, and uh, it, it works really well. It tells the story really well. You can go on there, and you can get a, a, a great sense of what we are and what we offer and how it works. But then social media continues and, and develops and keeps that relationship current. One thing that we have been very committed to is trying to be as authentic about it as possible. You know, I would say that you know, when we had that bomb cyclone in March of uh, March thirteenth of twenty nineteen, um, that was brutal. That was those were three of the hardest days of my entire life. We we lost uh, I forget thirty five or forty calves, some cows. I was digging, you know, dead calves out of snowdrifts. It, it was it was brutal and. And the cattle industry, I think, um, you know, the the customers can be flighty, I think, in the marketplace. And they don't, you know, sometimes they don't want to tell the the harder day stories. We tell the hard day stories. And, and we did a number of posts. And I mean, I literally had days of being, you know, in a backhoe in, in tears, you know, just it was just rough. And but that's part of the story, too, for people to really understand where their food comes from and how hard people work to make their food. The farmer, farming and ranching families and the kind of commitments they make uh, and how hard they work year round every single day. That's an important story for the the people to to understand, because the the, the disconnect between the the from people who buy the food and the people who grow the food is is growing and that that is urgent to me. Yeah, it doesn't just magically show up at the grocery store. We'll be right back after this short break. What about so tell us more about the organization that you're a part of. I don't think it's that you started it, no. but you're you're the CEO of it. Just tell us about that just briefly. No, the National Western Center has nothing to do with uh, the ranch. Uh, my background is architecture and planning. I was uh, became along this process the planning director for the city and county of Denver. I ran the short term, mid term, and long term long range planning for the city of Denver from 2013 to 2018. Some of the fastest growing years in the city's history. Uh, Denver was in the top ten fastest growing cities in the U.S. during those years. So I, I was, you know, right in the middle of the discussion around, you know, growing a city. And and it just became so incredibly clear to me that the issues of the urban place and the issues of the rural and place are so inextricably linked from each other. Yet we make land use decisions in the city as if we're in a microcosm. We make land use and economic decisions and social decisions and equity decisions in a rural place as if it's this this bubble. And they're not. It's a continuum between these two places. And and there's few places in the country where you could be the planning director of a top 10 growing city in the U.S. and live in, and operate a cattle ranch and have that even be remotely possible. Now, I do work a lot. I do I do have long weeks and I work and I don't go places other than here and downtown. But there's they have so informed each other. As a matter of fact, in 2014, that TEDx people called me and they said, we think you are weird. Like we, like how the heck does this work where you're the playing director of a major city and you're running a cattle operation? We assume there's some method behind your madness. And I did a TED talk in 2014 that I don't think is that great, quite honestly, but it's worth 13 minutes, I suppose. But it's, uh, but I talk about that, the gifts that can be offered between these places and the challenges and, and the, and the costs of us not understanding each other. So the National Western Center, uh, came out of a goal to help set up the next 100 years for success for the National Western Stock Show. That's a 115-year-old institution in our state. But the Stock Show makes most of its revenue in January at the National Western Stock Show, the Super Bowl of rodeos. And the rest of the year, they had all these facilities that were hard to upkeep, maintain, and, and live on that revenue. So conversations ensued between city leaders and the stock show about, is there another model we could look at? From that, long story short, was the National Western Center Master Plan that looked at making the uh, those 250 acres, rather than just primarily there for the 16 days in January, to a year-round destination for entertainment, education, agriculture, ag tech, and, of course, the anchor event of the National Western Stock Show every January. Fast forward to 2018, and this opportunity came up to look at the National Western Stock Show or the National Western Center, where I could 
honestly kind of come out of the closet about my ranch life because I honestly, I took a lot of grief for being an urbanist who was supporting and advocating for density around transit stations in our urban center while living on a big cattle ranch. I took a lot of grief for it. I mean, you Google me, go deep a few pages and there's, you know, people bitching about me and uh, which I'm proud of because I had very good reasons for that. And, uh, and so, but this, this was the perfect opportunity to, to mash up my two worlds and to deal with the very issues that I really have been dealing with, which is this, how do you create a thriving, sustainable, regenerative urban place? And how do you, how does it get supported by a thriving, sustainable, regenerative rural place? 30 miles apart, different economies, different languages, different politics, different social structures, but but so interdependent with each other. And the National Western Center is all about that. It's a gift. I am so thrilled to be able to have the privilege of working on that. The National Western Center Authority that I'm the CEO of, we operate and maintain and, and program the National Western Center. The city and county of Denver owns the land and the facilities. Our partners are the National Western Stock Show and Colorado State University. Check it out, nationalwesterncenter.com. It's a, it's a, it's a one in a on the planet kind of place. It's, it's incredible. Well, I know. Yeah. I mean, tons of people from Iowa, a lot of my buddies come out here every January would never miss the show. Um, but all the time. Um, okay. I want to, I want to hit before I forget on a lot of, I think some of the hurdles that farmers and ranchers have in being able to implement what you've done is some of the red tape around, lead legal structures and stuff of how do you set this up and be able to direct market by cut? What's some of the red tape around that um, and around being able to work with a packer directly or work with, you know, with a, a um, facility directly to be able to produce direct to consumer meat and like, and, and just what do you see as overall like policy opportunity here to be able to enable more of what you've been able to do? So I'll, I'll, I have two parts to an answer. The first piece is that it, it hasn't been that hard, honestly. I mean, we one, we knew we had to work with the USDA f- facility, inspective facility, so we did that. That was, we, we weren't going to look at options that weren't that. We, we also work with a, a, a slaughter facility that is one of, uh, I think, only two in the state still, animal welfare approved and inspected slaughter facilities. That's important to us that animals are, are killed respectfully. And that's not hard to do. And truthfully, most slaughter facilities do. They just don't have that certification. But uh, so, we, so that was that piece. The rest of it's been very straightforward, a lot of hard work, a lot of learning curve of, of how to do this in a financially uh, uh, responsible and sustainable way. So that piece has been good. From a policy perspective, the second part of my answer, it's a much bigger conversation. Uh, my work around that, I'm vice president on the board of directors for the American Grassfed Association. And one of the things we've been focused on in American Grassfed Association is country of origin labeling. You know, in the grass-fed world, a lot of grass-fed beef comes in from New Zealand and Australia, uh, Argent- Argentina. And, you know, if, if you bring in a hanging half and a freezer container and cut and wrap it here, you can put product of the USA on it. I don't, I don't think that's fair to uh, American ranchers. And so I, I hope that that change really happens. We don't deal on that scale, but nonetheless – in order for small operations to grow, because you can't be stagnant in this industry, you'll die. You have to constantly be growing and evolving and and getting smarter about what you're doing. Um, You you can't be fighting an unfair fight. And, And that's really what's been happening right now. I'm also a strong, strong advocate, and this is personal to our operation, maybe not maybe applicable to every small ranching operation. But what is defined as grass-fed is really important to us. And our customers are really smart and they do their homework about it and they want to know. That means for us, 
there's no antibiotics, there's no steroids, there's no home, no no hormones. They're they're on grass or they're or in the wintertime, they're on grass then too, but they're they're basically being fed and sustained by hay that we grow. We know exactly what what's in it and what's not in it. Um, uh, you know, if our animals get sick and we use an antibiotic treatment, they're pulled out of it, or customers get a discount because we, you know, they'll they'll say, Hey, you know, that was a year and a half ago. I'm not worried about that. But um, so but we're competing against folks that say, you know, all beef is grass fed. That's true. It's not, but it's not grass finished. And uh, true grass fed beef takes longer and costs more to produce. And that's why it, it, it garners a higher price per pound. But to be able to be fighting folks who might not be interpreting those principles in the same way is, is a challenge for us. Yeah, I think it's the um, just leveling the playing field is really where you're yep. getting at and being more transparent with all this. Yep. And, and that's what you guys have really been able to capture. And I think where the industry and just agriculture in general is going is a lot more transparency. Um, but what what's your take on where the future goes? And you you have a really unique perspective that you're very honed in with, you know, with the consumer. So What's your advice for, you know, for the farmers and ranchers listening in terms of where are things going? Let me first say, it's a big planet with a lot of people on it. We we have a protein supply challenge on our planet and in this country. So we need all beef to thrive. And, and so this, don't take anything I'm saying to mean that I don't 100% support all beef uh, operations and approaches we do because our country needs it. And consumers, we just want to give consumers a choice. That's all. When you go to the grocery store in the deli and look at the cheese counter, 46 kinds of cheese. Well, you know, maybe there aren't going to be 46 kinds of beef, but give them a choice. And and you're seeing more of that. People are going to buy, let the, let the market choose, let the market decide. I have hundreds of conversations with enormous producers and enormous packers through my work at National Western Center, through work with the AGA, and and through our platform here at the ranch about, and there's clearly a drive in the agriculture industry, farming and ranching across all sectors to be more transparent. They see it in the marketplace. And I think it's a a great evolution that they're pushing towards. Uh, And I think it's actually happening pretty quickly, uh, uh, quicker than I would have expected honestly. So I'm actually very optimistic about it. Change happens slow. We do get sort of attacked sometimes and people see us as maybe revolutionary in some point. We're, We're not. We're just a choice. I think that's a huge opportunity for, especially amongst agriculture, like we're all after the same things here and there's so much opportunity and so much room for everybody to play ball. One of the things to kind of to bounce around and hit on a couple of topics before we kind of wrap here, but one of the things you mentioned really early on surrounding regenerative ag is carbon, carbon sequestration. Right. That's another thing where there's kind of some bashing back and forth, but it's also like, hey, here's a huge opportunity here. Um, what's been your take on carbon sequestration, carbon markets, or overall just sustainability initiatives? So uh, I, I'll I will explain what I know. I'm not an expert on carbon sequestration, but here's the things that we're exploring right now. One is that it sure seems to me that when we are exploring soil health, a byproduct is that we're increasing carbon sequestration. Two, if there is an opportunity for a carbon credit program in this country that a lot of other developed countries have, that is a potential revenue stream for one, one doing the right thing for the planet, but two, creating revenue streams for struggling uh, farm and ranch operations. So, I'm I'm trying to learn more about that, and and I think there is a you know there's a lot of there are different studies out there to say different things about how much carbon we can sequester by changing our and improve, and focusing on soil health. My assumption is we're gonna we're gonna know a lot more about that in the next few years. A huge driver of carbon sequestration and overall soil health is implementing you know cover crops and keeping a living rut at all times. 
if there's a place, and of course the the excuse is, well, cover crops don't work here. If cover crops weren't going to work somewhere, I would assume it'd be a place with the elevation that you've got here in Colorado with only 13 inches of rain a year, but you've been able to make some cover crops work. I assume not all the time and it's not all rainbows and butterflies, but explain, you know, your take on cover crops and, and, you know, your approach there and maybe some failures and successes that you're having. So it's very hard here with 13 inches of rain and we're, we're, you know, we're a high mountain desert. I mean, is what we are here. And, and so it's, it's, it's challenging. However, um, we're, we're going to drive after we finish here and I'm going to show you some of our cover crop fields this year. And we've had some successes this year. We've had more failures than successes though in the past years. Um, we've tried to use cover crops to break hard pan, to crack through card pan with uh, root crops, um, you know, beets and, and turnips and things like that to, to cut through. We're trying to use cover crops to shade the soil, to keep the soil cooler, to capture moisture, to, to minimize runoff. Uh, or elim- you know, eliminate runoff, and we're we're having some luck there. We're using cover crops now. Uh, we're trying to completely eliminate chemical spray on all, all of our farm fields, so we're moving towards cover crops for weed control. Uh, but we're also using cover crops to start to really dig into, pun intended, how we convert farm fields to grass, uh, back to grass here at the ranch. Um, so that we're making less hay, um, we're feeding fewer bales. You know, we don't have that many days a year when we're, we've got so much snow on the ground that they can't get to the grass. So we're, we're working hard on that. And in the process, improving soil health, and we believe sequester more carbon in, into the ground. So we're, we're underway on that. We'll, we've, I'll show you three or four locations here today where, where that's underway, but we're, we're at the beginning of that process. When did you, when did you start experimenting with cover crop? Probably five years ago, we started some experiments, planted them at the wrong time, planted the wrong stuff, came up, died, you know, dissed it in, you know, did made, made all the mistakes you can possibly make. As we've become better farmers over the last 10 years and better soil moisture managers, we're getting better at it. Explain to us, okay, so Wagyu beef, you know, what the heck is that and how did that come to be here in eastern Colorado? That's been a really interesting evolution. So when we started, we raised Angus and we raised Angus bulls and Angus mama cows. And uh, we, we did okay with it. You know, we were getting fat cattle on grass in two years or less, but the the marbling wasn't great on the grass. And we were competing, make no mistake, we're competing against every steak on the shelf, right? So we 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 wanted to improve with that. Started to do some research and and discovered Wagyu uh, cattle. Wagyu is a Japanese breed that really came from pulling plows in the rice paddies. They they have just developed a, a physiology, I'm probably not using that word correctly, but a, a, a body system that very efficiently processes green protein. They're eating rice shoots at, in the rice baddies. And so we experimented. We bought a couple of Wagyu bulls, full-blooded Wagyu bulls, and bred them to our mama cows. A couple things happened. One, we saw at the same age, we saw they weren't as big but the marbling was about the same. And, and if we waited a little longer, the marbling was spectacular. And the marketplace gets Wagyu beef. I mean, you know, A5 Kobe Wagyu beef sells for whatever, 50 bucks an ounce or something crazy like that. We, we don't really leverage that piece on our pricing. We try to, we just use it as a, uh, as the right thing to do for getting the best product. And, and, and it does attract, we think some customers who are looking for Wagyu. So we have full-blooded Wagyu bulls that we breed to, to Angus mama cows. And it's been a, it's been a good move for us. Okay. So kind of with your cover crops and with the grass that you're feeding overall, you talked about triticale. Why triticale? Why here? And then what, what are some of the other things that you're, that you're also using? The punchline of the story is that this is winter wheat country, and it does that's that's really the best crop in the eastern plains of Colorado. That we do all right with feed corn too, but uh, winter wheat does really well. Triticale is a hybrid of winter wheat and ryegrass, so it's a it's a, it was a great solution for us. Um, we have consistent success with it, pretty good production rates anywhere from. Uh, 
a ton and a half to three tons to the acre on dry land fields, pretty pretty good results. And we can graze it in the fall. We can graze it in the spring. We can bale it in the spring. We we do some spring crops. We'll do some oats occasionally, some oat hay, and sometimes we'll do some sorghum Sudan in the summertime. That's a less reliable crop. I've had my heart broken more times than I'd like to admit. It was was sorghum Sudan. I'm going to show you some of that today. Um, so so that tri- that's what led to the triticale, and it's been a really productive solution for well, us. Well, triticale has really good. It's great for feeding cattle, the protein content and stuff, and it's really good and and good for drought tolerance. Yes, as well. great drought tolerance. What about other kind of stuff like legumes? Or you mentioned some of the brassicas, um, like the turnips and, and stuff. But what about radishes? Or what about other legumes and other diversity into the cover crop blends? Usually when we're doing cover crop mixes, we're all, there's there might be some trit in there too. There might be some sorghum sudan in there, um, some clover sometimes uh, on top. These are all to you know create this cover, uh, help to break through the crust, store moisture, but then in preparation, we hope for for native grass mix that we'll put in on top and of that. how afterwards. are you seeding these? Are you, it's drilled or it's air seeded or how? We have an air seeder. We use an air seeder. Um, we're looking at ways as we look at soil health and, and, uh, we talked before the interview today, I'm a Nicole master's disciple and, and, uh, the, the whole organization is very much interested in that and looking at vermiculture and extracts and how to, how we can use, we can look at each, the, the chemical and biological makeup of each each field and pasture and apply the kind of extracts and compost teas that that can work there. Haven't applied a drop of it yet, but we are hell-bent on building a, a yard right now and doing some work on on assessing that. We're also doing all the financial analysis to, to see, you know, how, how do we do this and not have the cure kill us while trying to address the disease. Yeah. So a lot of this, you know, for, for some context for everyone, it's making your own microbial products is essentially what it is that are very diverse microbial products, but very fungal dominant microbial products and, and getting that biology stimulated and basically inoculating the soil with the good biology that you're going to need to be able to cycle nutrients and store carbon. And, but a lot of it's for water too. And it's, it's allowing for the plant roots to interact with the soil better. Are you putting on like any synthetic fertilizer and stuff right now? Or what about the manure besides obviously most of it's getting dropped out there, but any, any of that kind of stuff or not? We're not, we don't do any, no, we've never done nitrogen. There's no fertilizers going in at all. We feed in the winter if you look at the the pasture maps of our and field maps of the ranch and farm, the you'll see that we have grass nearby or next to in almost every case our farm fields. So cattle are grazing in the grass, but we feed with the bale processor in the farm in strips. We'll start on the west side and just strip, strip, strip all the way across to the east side. So they're eating that. You're getting that extra hay um, litter that's on the on the. The field, but then they're they're pooping obviously on the field too, and then um, you know we'll either no till it, or depending on where the weeds are at, or uh, or we'll disc it in uh, as well. So it's kind of like a bale grazing is kind of what they call that, but you're calling it something different. That you're you're rolling out the bales, or how does that work? We have bale processors. We just that that chew up the bales and spit them out and into a windrow, and we you know we'll lay out you know a quarter mile of of hay with you know 500 head of cattle in the in a farm field. That's awesome. So yeah, so it's utilizing the integration of the livestock to be able to stimulate, put the nutrients back out there. Um, that's a good, yeah, awesome way to do it. What about, you know, what, what's some of the advice that you have for other people that are listening to this, that maybe are in this geography or maybe other, you know, challenging geographies, what's some of your advice or best tips on why you think you've been able to really have success here? I would say, don't be afraid to, to try new things. You know, you can try new things on small scales. Um, and, and we have learned so much. We've learned as much from our failures as we have from our successes, for sure. And um, uh, and I guess you know I I have a mentality that you know a breakdown or a train wreck is progress because we've just eliminated something. So I I am not afraid to fail. Hopefully, you know, I, I do like the concept of fail fast so that you get it over with. But, um, you know, that, that it, 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 the farmers and ranchers are so entrepreneurial. I said it before, you know, it, it embrace that, 
that ingenuity, that creativity, and know how your microclimate, your microcosm of your location works. I've had, I've, I'm a, we, we all try to study so much all the time, but the truth is, it's very individual to this locale, to this soil, to this climate. Um, and we're always trying to find like-minded folks who are also uh, trying new things so that we can share our experiences and, and help each other out. As we're sitting here in Colorado today, it's August, there's been some new, uh, a lot of water issues going on in Colorado right now, a lot of other weather issues and climate issues. What's your take on all that? What are you seeing on your farm specifically? And how are you guys thinking about water? Um, but also, you know, throughout this whole state of Colorado or a lot of the country that water is a major issue right now. What's your take? So for for us, like I said, we don't we don't get a lot of water here. We we don't have any irrigated fields. So we're we are working hard. Not to say I wouldn't like an irrigated field, but um, we're trying to do what we're trying to do right now with what we have, and that's there's none of it irrigated. So that eliminates some things, right? We're not going to multiple crop. We fallow every field every other year. We don't do two out of three. We don't do three out of four. We do one out of two. That's a very intentional choice we make uh, here. That makes our crops more and the and the production rates more reliable. You know, I, I'm very concerned about climate change. I mean, just look at our entire state and what we're seeing in the number of wildfires we have burning in Colorado right now and uh, what changes in potential snowpack uh, that, that are going on. I think it is yet to be seen, though, there are going to be some places that get more moisture, some places that get less moisture. I don't know. I've seen miles that say both, both about the eastern plains of Colorado. So there are huge, huge impacts. Again, um, we have been disciplined to uh, to try to deal with the fact, the reality that we don't have uh, irrigation water here and irrigated land. And that's that's a choice we've made. Um, and and I think it was the right choice. It's been the right choice for us. I mean, you were talking a little bit on some of the rotational grazing and stuff like that, but talk about you technology overall. You're using a bunch of it, you know, connecting with your customers and stuff, but how does technology factor into the rest of your management and ability to, to utilize data or, or utilize new tech? We've used Pasture Map a lot. We've used Field View a lot, mostly for the reporting uh um, capacity that it has and the record keeping capacity. The truth is for us, when we're moving cattle, Jonathan Tuller, our ranch manager is, is a Zen master of looking at grass and knowing what kind of rates make sense, understanding truly the personalities of each pasture and, and, and given its current environment, how much moisture have we gotten? What time of year is it? What, what kind of grasses are there? Is this more of a cool grass season, cool season grass field, or more of a warm season uh, grass field? And and so um, I, you know, technology is not the answer to everything. A lot of this stuff is just get your boots on and kick kick some dirt clods. And and we've learned we've learned a t most of it that way. We are a completely data driven organization. We. And and Rob Gary and his team, led by Chrissy Kennedy, have brought incredible capacity to and really helped to evolve Flying B Bar Ranch from you know what Margaret and I could do, the two of us, kind of with my son helping sometimes and some seasonal help, into a a, a next level organization that's truly data driven. We. Right now, we are looking at this grass conversion process, and we hired an a, 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 a Excel spreadsheet business modeler to come in and really help us define what are the impacts of taking individual fields out of hay production on our cap capacity to produce X number of head per year for our business. So, so we don't guess on that stuff. We study the hell out of it. Um, and, and we look at every single thing that way, our decisions around, you know, this whole concept of building a, um, a, a compost tea ex, ex, extract uh, yard is a whole big business decision we're analyzing right now. Smaller decisions we may just try, you know, but things that have really long-term and significant financial impact, we we dig into them and we dig into the numbers. And especially to be able to grow the way that you guys have too. 
and just utilizing other resources, utilizing people around you. And yeah, sometimes it, you got to pay them. <laughs> it takes a little money, but um, it looks like the ROI is really, you know, that's the focus. Yeah, it's been, I mean, for our, we're doing a much better job now really focusing on our retail side, what sells, how fast does it sell. We're really, for the first time now, figuring out, you know, to the dollar, what does it cost to, and we don't have the answer yet, but we're close on what does it cost us to home raise and finish fat animal for sale? I haven't known that in the past, quite honestly. I knew it was about as much or maybe a little more than <laughs> than, uh, than than what I was, my costs were on it. Uh, my expenses were a little bit less than what my, my revenue was on it, but we're really, we're really digging into that hard right now. And it's, it's hard work. Um, you know, I think it's also in, important to not just do that initial research, but set up tracking systems because things change and evolve. I mean, that all, all this stuff boils back to, you know, yeah, this is a family farm, but it's a business. And I think a lot of people forget about that, 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 yeah, it's a lifestyle. You're doing this because you love it. Like you've been able to find quite the passion here out of this. And like, obviously you found your calling, but it's, it, we're still running a business here too. It's got to be able to work. You've got employees and, you know, so take us home on that, on what's the future here. And especially tying in now with your son back on the operation, you know, what's your vision for the future? Where's this got to go from here? So we, we hope that this will be an operation that continues to go for some generations. My son graduated from Kansas state, came back to the, to the ranch and and is here and is, you know, all in and kind of, you know, Jonathan Tuller, our ranch manager's right-hand man, and he's learning it from the ground up. Um, I don't, you know, I honestly, I, he's he's said some things that lead me to believe he's he's here for the long term. Hey, that's his choice. Uh, I love I love that, and I love having him here. Uh, my daughter, our daughter, uh, who's uh, twenty three, almost twenty four, um, she's been in and out of the operation on the retail side too, and that's been great. And it is great to have the family involved. Um, we were solely a family operation, you know, with, uh, when we expanded and, and Rob, uh, became our partner three and a half, four years ago, you know, it, it really clearly became more of a focus or, around making sure that this, this, this business pencils, uh, and we make our decisions in, in financially smarter ways at a smaller scale it was easier too, right? If we had a better year or worse year, it was not that tough to absorb. Now it's, it, it, it has significant financial ramifications. And so we're, 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 we're more careful now about that than we were used to be when we were, you know, selling 40 head of beef, you know, you couldn't get hurt too bad there. What's really awesome here too, to, to kind of wrap is the opportunity in agriculture for young people to be involved, but you're doing it in a different manner. Um, bringing, you know, expanding things out, finding niche opportunities so that you can bring your son and your daughter into the operation. Um, I think a lot of farms are are missing that. They're not innovating. They're not finding new ways to capture more of the dollar for their product. Um, and there's not a lot of opportunities for young people to be involved in agriculture. So I mean, maybe a, a final thought on that, on, you know, how do we, how do we ensure the future of family farms and, and opportunities for young people to be involved? I would say the biggest indicator is that my son wanted to come back here. He, he, he's a smart kid, graduated with an ag business degree in an ag animal health minor. He know he gets it and he sees opportunity there. I think when, as we're seeing second, third, fourth generations, whatever they are, um, kids not wanting to come back, that's a pretty good indicator, right? It's like, my goodness, I saw my family work themselves to the bone and, and not have much to show for it maybe or as much to show for it as they like they see they see better opportunities elsewhere. I have I do think that the fact that we are vertically integrated here, you know, calf to to direct to consumer to their dining room table, um, that also a, requires a lot of different kind of skill sets other than just moving cows every day and fixing fence or just sitting in a tractor all day. Every day is wildly different here. The vibe here is 
fun. It's it's cool. It's innovative. It's creative. We're at the you know the bleeding edge of a whole bunch of 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 sort of a, approaches around regenerative agriculture right now that are attracting some interesting people, and it and it and it also attracts a really smart, interested, curious customers too who want to know about it too and so it's a whole that just sort of it, it's like turbo the faster we go it seems like the faster we go well everyone that's it for field work today this show was produced by Lori stern and edited by todd melby Kristen schmidt is running our social media and thanks to lauren humpert who is our project coordinator Thanks again to all the technical directors at American Public Media who help us record and mix our show. Be sure to check us out on social media at Fieldwork Talk across all the channels. Leave us a review. Hit us up on our website. Make sure that other people can find us. Don't forget, we love hearing from you. Give us a call, 651-228-4810. 651-228-4810. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the show today. And we'll catch you next time.